The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So continuing on the theme of the four foundations of mindfulness, and one of the uh, approaches I have for teaching about this very famous text about the Buddha lays out the practice of mindfulness is to uh, uh, see it as a journey that in a variety of ways and different ways through the text it describes a progression a deepening and development of mindfulness so it's not just a matter of being mindful of what is but being mindful of what is uh, done carefully and fully um, involves a change involves a series of changes uh, subjective changes in the person who's doing the practice and uh, as part of that those changes are changes in how we perceive the, uh, how we actually see what goes on um, so uh, how we perceive our present moment experience is not a static thing like once you see it you know that's it okay but uh, actually as the practice deepens we see our experience in in different ways and some Buddhists would probably say in deeper and deeper ways or more penetrating ways so to describe this journey a kind of a metaphor for it I want to tell you about a journey I took some years ago I spent a couple of weeks uh, traveling in Spain walking in Spain on a famous walkway called the El Camino the pilgrimage route and uh, hiked over the Pyrenees and down into the plains of Spain and uh, and um, good part of it is in the countryside and it was beautiful countryside the coming down through the Pyrenees is very peaceful, a lot of trees and and uh, you know not much buildings and things and kind of in nature and then you come down to the plains and there's a lot of farm communities, but there's a lot of space and forests and hills and and um, and there can be you know it would go, could go a while but even not, not seeing anyone and then every maybe a couple hours you come across a teeny village if you're lucky it had a kind of coffee shop. And um, and then, you know, you walk back into the fields and further, or the hills or wherever you went. But then at some point we came to a small city called Pampalona. And this pilgrimage route goes right through the city. And um, and so as we started, at some point we were in the countryside. And um, at some point it became clear there's a little bit more buildings, a little bit more you know, a little bit more buildings and a little bit more signs and a little bit more of something. And as we went further, there was more buildings and more signs and more traffic and more roads. And after a while, we weren't walking on dirt paths anymore. We were walking on the sidewalk. <laughs> and there's a clear that the pilgrimage route went on the sidewalk. There's signs that show where you're supposed to, where you're supposed to go. And uh, and then just getting deeper and deeper into the city and first was just, you know, lots of apartment buildings and residential areas and stores and you had to kind of look carefully for the signs because you were zigzagging around corners and and uh, sit, you know a cityscape and and then you get closer and deeper and deeper into the city it gets more citified more busy lots of people you know the countryside you see someone you say hello in the city you see all these people and you know you get a you try to say hello to all of them they think you were strange and uh you, you know, you know, it's just a lot of people and a lot of cars and a lot of traffic and a lot of activity and and um, there's a lot to track and be careful for. It's like where are we going? Where is this, where where's the tr- where's this 
those little signs. They have these round medallions on the sidewalk or in the walls. You have to look for these medallions and see where the trail is. And you, where are they? And people are buzzing around. And and um, and then you have to deal with uh, traffic lights and honking cars and and um, you know just you know you know you probably know the whole. You can imagine the you know, whole city kind of environment and busy busy thing. And um, and then uh, we stayed right smack in the middle of town in, a, in one of these um, hostels that they have for pilgrims. And um, that was nice. There were, it was a, probably was, it was mostly it was a religious hostel and it was probably, there was one very big room that maybe with bunk beds and maybe maybe different floors, kind of like terraces or something, but it was a very big room. Uh, my guess there was at least 200 people sleeping in this room. Yeah, how, how would you like that sleep? Have 200 people in your room with you. <laughs> and um, and uh, I used to live by the ocean, and you know, you'd have this at night. You'd have waves. You know, you feel the waves coming and crashing on the beach, and then another one comes. Well, there we had snoring. <laughs> And and it seemed like they were synchronized, synchronized snoring because over the, these waves would come and quiet, you know, and waves would come quiet. It was great uh, because because it just felt that it felt like a natural force. It's, 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 it's something of nature, and um, and so now I I feel very comfortable around snoring. Just it's just you know another manifestation of our natural world showing itself. And um, so if you have trouble with snor- some people snoring, you should go to El Camino and stay at the hostels. And um, so anyway, so then the next morning we got up and we, you know, we were going straight through town. So we, we continued from the middle downtown out and it didn't take too long. You know, we could walk and then got thinner and thinner and less cars, more space, more, a little bit more greenery, then some fields and then more buildings and then fields and more. And then we got out and it got more and more quiet and peaceful again and less cars. And then we were no longer on the road. We were on paths finally and in the woods. And and, uh, and after a while, I, I could see my relationship to myself changed. I could hear myself. <laughs> I could hear myself think and be aware of what was going on. I wasn't like constantly trying to figure out where I was being and kind of be outwardly focused about what's happening and what's going on. And and then I would go by store windows and, you know, oh, well, that looks interesting. And or I would see, you know, ice cream stores and and then spend half an hour debating about should I shouldn't have ice cream and you know, all these wonderful external things to be concerned about. That the city just provided lots of things. But then um and um oh we were they were also setting up for the bull run when we were there. So that added to the you know, the mind thinking about bull runs and you know Anyway, just a lot of loss, right? Once, but once we got out into the countryside again, my mind got quieter. I was less thinking about all these things. I could hear myself think. I could track what was going on for me. I was more acutely aware of my surroundings in a very different way. It was kind of, uh, kind of very comfortable and nice and beautiful to be there, rather than the mind being fragmented and jumping around and tracking so much and trying to figure out so much and think about things and whatever I was doing in the city. And so it was a journey from a quiet countryscape with a quiet, settled walk and, and then getting busier and busier and busier and then uh, the next day kind of getting quieter and quieter. 
So that's a little bit how meditation can go, and it's a little bit how some of these aspects of this text describe the process of meditation. Uh, what we're talking about now is the very end of the text, which is um, has five exercises called uh, mindfulness of the Dharma. I like to think of it as mindfulness of the truth, but it has to do with mindfulness of... Um, a lot has to do with mindfulness of mental processes that we have, mental activities. And those mental processes that we all have that um, when overdone can lead to bondage, being caught, and those mental processes that lead to liberation, to freedom. And, they, uh, and, um, and so there's three of them that lead to bondage. And if you notice those, if you look at what the subject is of those th- first three exercises, it's a journey from being in the active course city, you know, where the mind is lots of activity, and then to a quieter state, to a quieter state, to simpler and more into the natural world and natural place, kind of. So the first of those three, which we covered a few weeks ago, are the hindrances. And the hindrances are, ma- are major preoccupations that we have that uh, require a fair amount of imagination, generally, or thinking about things. And, uh, you know, kind of thinking about things, concerned about things. So things like um, uh, sen- being preoccupied with sensual desire or with sex or with sensuality or, you know, s- all kinds of sensual pleasure. Uh, sometimes, and that can be pretty innocent and simple. I mentioned ice cream stores before, so some of you are now thinking about that maybe. Uh, but, um, but, you know, it's not uncommon for on retreats, meditation retreats, for people who come to talk to teachers about their experience will talk about how they're spending an inordinate amount of time in sexual fantasies. How do you break free of that? How do you stop doing that? And, um, and that's an example of sexual fantasy that, we, that people don't want to be involved in is an example of something that's relatively coarse. It takes a lot of imagination. It takes a lot of, you know, you know ideas. And, you know, it's a rather complicated thing to be doing. Se- second one is ill will. And ill will usually just doesn't happen for no reason at all. It usually comes with stories and ideas and he did, she did, we all did, you know, how could they? And it involves a little complicated mind to be caught up in that. And people who get caught up in these hindrances, there's five of them, uh, tend to spend a lot of time in their thoughts. And that's one of the reasons why it's, um, uh, we're trying to quiet that part of the mind in order to get into a, a deeper you know, quiet, deep insight. And so the first exercise is to work through those and to let go of them so that we can get quieter. As the coarser preoccupations of the mind quiet down, then deeper and quieter or more, more um, you know, maybe deeper or simpler things. And in the Buddhist analysis, deeper and more powerful, but usually a lot simpler has to do with um, uh, self-identity issues. A very simple identifications with, I'm my body. I'm my pain, the pain is me. I'm, you know, I'm this or that. I'm my feelings. I'm my views and opinions. That's who I am. And so there's a way of identifying or seeing these things as representing who I am that doesn't involve a complicated story, but it's a very simple kind of, almost like a one-to-one uh, identification with something. Um, you know, the... Um, uh, I had uh, toe surgery some years ago 
And, um, and so I have a scar on my big toe. And um, I could imagine that I, you know, I always want to have socks on now because, you know, it, I don't want anybody to see I have this scar on my big toe and they're going to ask questions and probe into my life and, you know, and, and you know, so, so this, t- this scar is, you know, I identify, it somehow says something about me, I identify as part of me and, <clears throat> and how people see me. And so I could, it's not very complicated, just like I just keep socks on. You know, so I've identified with something or, or, or make an equation or use it to represent me. And, and so some of these uh, things that we identify with are uh, more complicated, of course, than other times, but some are relatively simple. And the simplest one, um, but often the most uh, powerful one, and some people take it as being a, almost a deep spiritual state, is to identify the self with consciousness. And uh, that's who I really am. And um, consciousness is relatively simple, doesn't involve a lot of story. It's more like a felt sense of a presence of awareness as opposed to um, something that's been constructed or made up or, you know, that uh, is more complicated than that. And, um, and so uh, this movement of identification is a quieter, simpler activity, maybe more powerful than sometimes than these hindrances. When those quiet down, as meditation gets calmer, then it's like getting further out in the countryside. And now we're into the place that's more natural, more you know, in, in the in, in natural setting where it's simpler, and we're we're in touch with most natural elements of experience in a very simple way. And um, and it's, it can be much more pleasant, enjoyable to be present now because it's not complicated. It's not he said, she, he said, she said. It's not these stories and ideas. It's not resentment. It's just a very simple moment-to-moment experience of of uh, sense data, sense experience. And the reason I tell, I made the story about walking in Spain and, and this journey from more complicated hindrances to identification to now to just sense experience is that if we just uh, talked about uh, being mindful of sense experience in and of itself, when there's a, a sound, just no hearing. When there's a sight, just no seeing. You know, not w- what am I hearing and what kind of car was that? Was that a '54 Chevy? Uh, you know, or you know, you know, or what's what's that sight? You know, what's the, what am I seeing? And then we're analyzing it and thinking about it and wondering where I can buy that myself. Just just seeing, just tasting, just smelling, just tactile sensations. Just very simple. Uh, the simple experience without analysis, without interpretation, without a before and after the immediacy of the sense data that goes on. If, we talk, if I talk directly about that, some of you probably would get bored. You might already be bored. Uh, some of you might get bored and think that it's, um, you know, it's just so dry or so, so foreign from our lived life that uh, it's like, it's just not relevant to what, you know, why should I do this, be this simple? But when you follow the path of deepening and quieting the mind and the, and the mindfulness gets stronger, um, it actually feels quite exquisite. It's, uh, it's so good and wonderful 
to have the mind under your own control, in a sense. Uh, when you have the when the hindrances are control, you're not in control. You know, you feel you're in bondage. You're caught up. You're you can't use your mind as an instrument of attention. And to be in the vice grip of identification, which some people are, can be very painful uh, in many ways. And, and to have these things kind of quiet and soften and not bothering us anymore is really nice. It's a relief. It's peaceful. It's calm. And so in that peacefulness and calm, now to just have the simplicity of he- hearing the wind or seeing a sight or feeling a sensation in the body or seeing a thought arise and pass without doing anything complicated about it. It just feels so exquisite. It feels so nice. It's like, wow, this is a relief. And it feels maybe as nice as going in the, for those people who like to do it, going for a walk in a very natural setting. And it's very uncomplicated with um, human civilization. Things get simple, and sometimes people find their minds get simple uh, when all the human civilized things are not kind of stimulating them into the world of thoughts. So then another angle to talk about this um, third exercise having to do with a sense data, sense experience, is a story that goes back to the time of the Buddha of a, a religious teacher in the time of the Buddha who was called Bahia of the Bark Cloth. It seems that he, um, as an ascetic, uh, he pounded some kind of bark to make cloth out of it, and that's, that's what he wore. But he was a renowned teacher in his area, and he had many students. And uh, he seemed to have been a, a fairly decent person, uh, honest and self-reflective. And... Um, you know, he'd probably done a fair amount of practice. And he had come to the conclusion that uh, he had uh, experienced the full possibility of liberation. He had done his practice, he had his students, and he, but he wondered if this was true. And so he kind of asked the question, the privacy of some, you know, at night or something. Um, he asked himself, is it really true, you know, that I have attained full liberation? And um, back in ancient India, they had these devas, these, these you know, gods that floated around. And so they got, this deva uh, heard what this guy was thinking. And uh, the deva came over and said, nope. <laughs> nope, you are not fully liberated. You're not even on the path to liberation. And, um, and so the guy asks, the teacher asks, well, uh, who is liberated and who knows the path? And the Deva said, the Buddha. And the Buddha is in Savati, in Sar, 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 what's it called? Uh, uh, Varanasi. <laughs> and um, and uh, so, um, so the guy, he ta- takes it seriously. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't feel like, you know, not, you know what does this Deva know? I'm enlightened, you know. He doesn't have the conceit. He's in oh, someone else. So, so he goes. He goes. Uh, he takes. He's on the. He's on. He lives on the coast. Now, the coast of India to Varanasi is not a. You know, and the text says he traveled. It took him one day and night to travel there. So that's kind of a miracle. But uh, but how I understand it, it's a kind of a, the folkloric way of saying he just was intent. He just went. 
with nothing, you know, nothing stopped him. He just went to, you know, just, and, um, and so he showed up at uh, Savati, Paranasi, where the Buddha was. And um, just as the Buddha was heading out for his morning alms round to get food for the day, and, um, and it's not a you know, good time to get teachings from the Buddha, but he was so determined, he was so serious. It was a serious, mature person, spiritually mature, wise person, who thought this is, this is the most important thing. And, um, and I think some teachers really appreciate when people come with a real sense of seriousness and purpose. In, uh, my engagement in this practice is the most important thing I have, I'm doing, and this, I really have a question here. So he asked the Buddha, um, can you teach me the practice that leads to my long-term happiness and freedom? And the Buddha said, Bahia, this is not the right time for me to teach you. And so Bahia says, yes, but could you please tell, tell me? <laughs> but it's not the right time. And then a third time Bahia said, can you please tell me the path, the practice? And uh, now when you ask a Buddha three times, uh, the custom of India is the Buddha is supposed to answer. So, um, so the Buddha gives him, gives him a very brief, very pointed and powerful teaching because he has to get breakfast. <laughs> you know, so, it's, uh, so you get this pithy thing that's almost like a, you know, in, enigmatic almost perhaps, but uh, it's, uh, and this particular passage I'm going to read you is one of the most common passages uh, from the suttas read um, by Vipassana teachers. Uh, because it seems that for many Vipassana teachers, what's being pointed to here uh, really represents a core essential aspect of insight practice. So here, here's what the Buddha said to Bahia. You should train yourself thus. In reference to what is seen, let there only be the seen. In reference to the heard, let there only be the heard. In reference to the sensed, let there only be the sensed. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. That's the first part. This is, sometimes people only read this part. And um, so to explain that a little bit, is uh, in the scene, let there only be the scene. So I see this glass here, and if I'm just seeing the glass, I just see a glass, the simplicity of the glass. And I'm not thinking about what store it came from and how I can get this kind of glass for home, and this is a very nice glass, and I wonder who I talked to at IMC to buy it, and you know, I'm sure that they're willing to you know, sell it to me. If, and I'm going off on this tangent, right? And, and, um, and stories, and then I realized I didn't bring my wallet, I don't have money, and what am I going to do? Can I, maybe I need an IOU, and, and I'm far away from the glass, you know. But to just see the glass and not make any story, not have any desires for it or aversions toward it, and just see the glass for its glass. When it coming out of uh, strong meditation, the mind is very quiet and very still, and it's not thinking a lot, and you look at a glass like this, it can look like crystal. It can look so beautiful and amazed and like shiny and the, 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 
you know, the the clouds over the eyes or, you know, the, all the thinking that kind of clouds our perception has been reduced. And it's just like, wow, that's beautiful. And just the glass, seeing the glass for the glass. No complications, no interpretations, no for and against of it. Same thing with the herd. In the herd, let there just be the herd. Don't make it more complicated. If there's a sound of a car outside, it's just a room. Just let it be the room. And then, uh, and then you don't have to analyze the sound or, uh, you know, get upset because that clearly was not an electric car and don't they know about the climate change and, you know, and the mind goes off, right? And then it's gotten complicated. Just a sound, nothing more, nothing less. The simplicity of just a sound. The sensed means the other senses. And, uh, and then the cognized is, uh, is just a thought, an idea, arises in the mind, and just know the idea. So if I think about, you know, I don't know, if I think about, um, I have thoughts about water, because I just held the glass with the water, and I just have recognize water, water thoughts. And, uh, and I just don't do anything with it. Just, just see it for what it is. Some of you have heard me teach the difference between thoughting and thinking. The mind thoughts. That's what it does. It pumps out thoughts. But the thinking is when we get involved in the thoughts. We do association. We react to it. We uh, get involved with the thought. And then we get involved in a chain of thoughts that are connected that I call thinking. To just allow the cognized to be cognized is just have a thought arise and leave it alone. You know it. You know what it is. Just leave it alone. So, um, so that's the that's the first uh, half of his the Buddha's instructions to Bahia. Uh, why is this so important? You know, I mean, this seems pretty uninteresting. There must be more sophisticated things to do in the world than uh, just in the scene. Just see the scene. Um, there are more sophisticated things in the world to do for sure, but that doesn't mean we should do them always. There's um, this, sometimes simplicity is the way to the heart. Simplicity is the way to the deeper places inside of us. In particular, what we want is to uh, shake free or uproot from the mind and the heart uh, its attachments. As we go deeper and deeper into the, into the heart, we see how much we're constantly interfering and wanting and getting and constructing and, uh, you know, being for and against. And when we're sophisticated and involved with complicated, wonderful things like political philosophy, it's hard to see, uh, you know, how much the mind is actually operating in opinions and ideas and preferences. And so to really start seeing how this works so that the unhealthy activities of the mind can begin to be uprooted. Things have to be pretty simple, pretty simple. And so this is it's not just an experience seeing in the seeing for its own sake, but how it supports a deeper liberation, deeper freedom, and deeper understanding. So then the Buddha goes on. Uh, doing this, keeping it this simple, um, that is how you should train yourself. For when for you there will be only the seeing in reference to the seeing, only the herd in reference to the herd, 
only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized, then, by here, there is no you in connection with that. There's no you. So if I see the glass as just the glass, there's no, it's independent of any ideas that this is my glass or I want this glass or, you know, this, uh, my status as a Dharma teacher has a lot to do with how wonderful this glass is and I want to hold it up so you recognize how great I am. That's a lot of me involved, right? So if you just allow the glass to be the glass, the glass is a glass without any reference to myself. It's just a glass, simple. So he says there's no you there in those things. For some people who uh, are caught up constantly in selfing, all their thoughts are self-referential in nature, it's a relief, it's a profound relief not to be always selfing about everything, identifying and concern, seeing everything through the, the, wind, the, the, the lens of me, myself, and mine. So it's a training in mindfulness to learn to just be very simple and experience the moment-to-moment sense data as it comes in at the sense doors. And, uh, and we learn a lot about our identification, we, a lot about the ways we can't do that because we get involved in wanting and not wanting and selfing in relationship to it. As we see that, then we can begin to be mindful of it, not to see it as a fault, but see it as something to be mindful of, and mindfulness helps to quiet down more. We get less caught by it and less involved, and we don't feed it so much. Then, um, um, so there's no you in connection to that, those things sensed, heard, seen. When there's no you in connection with that, there's no you there in those things. When there's no you there, you are neither here nor in between the two. So there's the glass. I'm not in the glass. I'm not, no, there's no thoughts about the glass and me. Just, just the glass. If I'm, not, if I'm just letting the glass be the glass... There's no glass, there's no me in relationship to the glass, no, no me in the glass. But in that very simple experience of the glass, there is no I here either. We can be self-reflective and say, yeah, of course there's I, I'm here, looking at it. But in the moment-to-moment experience, there's no construct, no thought, no idea, no sense of I'm here and the glass is there. Most of the times, human beings are caught up in subject and object thinking. It's, we don't have, not required to be always thinking of subject and object. I'm here and you're there. It's just, you know, it's a way of organizing our reality. But, it, uh, but to have a relief from that and stop doing that, to see that it's optional, to see it's a construct, allows us to kind of maneuver in, in the world of self in a freer, easier way and to put it down when it's not needed. So um, there's no you uh, here, there, or in between. Now here comes the, the punchline, you know, the powerful statement in the end. Just, um, just this 
is the end of suffering. A lot of suffering has to do with finding self, being attached to self, having ideas that come out of the self and wanting something for the self and being and to be able to just be in the simplicity of the sense experience and not posit a self or caught up in a self or wanting a self or doing anything me, myself, and mine um, can, end, can really let the mind relax in a very f- profound way so there's no suffering. No, this translation that, that I read from here uses the word stress rather than suffering. And um, because one of the primary sources of stress, of suffering, has to do with a constellation of ideas connected to me, myself, and mine, if you look at it. So we have here in this Bahia story uh, an emphasis on just being with a sense data, a sense experience in the radical simplicity. Now in this the Four Foundations of Mindfulness text, what it says there is um, uh, we should notice uh, there is the eye, sight object, there's, there's me looking, there's the glass that I'm looking at, and then between the two, there's a, te- a term which, if you tell you the Pali, the ancient Indian word, it can sound like a technical word, but it just means a knot, you know, knotted up, like a tangle. So there's the glass, they're seeing it, and then there's the tangled, the way I get entangled with it, in between. You know, there's nothing in between, right? But, <laughs> but uh, it's kind of, I don't know, metaphor, kind of seems that way. Like, so I'm seeing the glass, I'm here, there's looking at the glass, and then there's me thinking about, this is the glass that I need to have at home. I'll have enduring happiness at home with this glass. And how can I get it? There must be some ethical way for a Dharma teacher to get this glass out of the Dharma center and get it to my home. And how can I do it and also maintain my status as someone who's supposed to be relaxed about these things? You know, and I am entangled now. That's the knot. Okay? My attachment. And so what we're asked to do here is to notice the simplicity of seeing, the object and seeing it. And if we, when we start kind of see, seeing much more the simplicity of it like that, then it's easier to tease apart the tangle, the knot, how, how we're relating to it, what I want, what I don't want, uh, that's, that's in between. And then the text says that uh, as you know, you should know this, how the how you should recognize when these tangles arise. When there's no, no tangle, no entanglement, you should know, understand, when you get entangled. To really see it. And when the entanglement disappears, you should know that it's gone. To be able to recognize what it's like to have the perception be very simple without being caught, caught up in what you're seeing or hearing or thinking. And then it says that um, we should also know how, we should also know um, uh, what is the letting go that lets the tangle go away. So there's a letting go process that goes on. It's not just simply watching, 
But once we recognize the tangle, there can be a letting go. It can be done consciously. And remarkably, when your mindfulness is strong and you really see what's going on, uh, the mind lets go of itself. And that's a beautiful thing to not feel like you're always the agent, the subject who has to do things, but to actually watch that there's a natural process of the mind where things let go of themselves when they're seen clearly enough. It's a very important uh, step in this process of mindfulness because if it's always about me letting go, it reinforces me as a subject. And, uh, and to have the experience of no subject, just awareness, and then watching a process of things dissolve, that the attachments dissolve, is very instructive. And, um, and then one should know that, uh, that uh, tangles, entanglements that have been abandoned will no longer arise again. And that's kind of like the promise of Buddhism. You don't have to go through this process over and over and over again. You could actually uproot or cut off some of these tangles so that uh, you know, they never come up again. And you kind of know, you recognize, oh, this will never come up again. I don't know why I'm thinking about it now, but um, I remember one year I was teaching a retreat up here in Jokoji. And um, I, for a number of years in a row, and there was a woman who um, came back a second year and she said, Gil, that retreat last year was really great. I was changed and I've stayed changed. Well, how have you changed? I'm no longer cynical. After that retreat, no more cynicism. The cynicism does not arise. Isn't that pretty cool? So anyway, so that's, that's the kind of the direction we're going is that to actually recognize these things don't come up again. So the so from so one of the reasons to let go of the complicated world of preoccupation with sex and resentments and so forth is so that we can really deal with the deeper issues of identification. Sometimes things like uh, sexual sexual motivation and resentment have a lot to have their basis in identification. How we identify with ourselves in certain ways. When those quiet down and we begin appreciating, we can just stay with the simplicity of the moment. Hearing, tasting, touching, seeing, tactile experience. See the thoughts, see the movement of the mind. Just, and not to make anything with it. Not make any stories, interpretations. Experience it moment by moment almost as if there's no past and no future. Because past and future don't really exist. They are figments of the imagination in a certain way. You can't, you know, you, you can kind of touch the present moment, you know, but you can't touch the past, only through your memory. And the future, I suspect that a good percentage of you, of you here have as poor, or uh, poor, capacity to predict the future as I have. I can't tell you how many times I knew what was going to happen and I was all afraid or concerned or nervous about it based on some image and then it just didn't happen that way. So to have no thought of the future for in meditation maybe, no thoughts of the past and just let each experience be there 
in its pristine simplicity, a sound, a taste, a smell, a sight, a thought, not picking it up, not getting involved, not being for and against it, not using anything that happens in meditation as fuel to criticize yourself or to feel bad about yourself in any way. It's just a phenomena. It's, it's nature. It's natural phenomena arising and passing, coming and going. And in getting close to that kind of simplicity, we start becoming more acutely aware of the tangles, the way we get, do get caught up. And when you're caught up, when there's a tangle, let it just be the tangle. Don't have to. Don't get seduced by the by the attachments that this deserves thinking and analyzing and selfing and you know and using it to beat yourself up. Just oh, just a tangle. I'm just a ta- there's attachment. It's not a crime. And you get the simplicity of attachment, the pristine simplicity of attachment. Oh, this is what it is. Isn't that pretty cool? No before, no after, just an attachment. And then we start seeing these entanglements and that, that allows for a process of letting go, abandoning, and, uh, and that abandoning can go deeper and deeper. So this is actually a, quite a profound part of this mindfulness practice. And the journey can be seen, as a, the whole journey we've been doing since January of the Satipatthana can see as a journey that allows us to develop the strength of mindfulness, the strength capacity to be present, to allow us to be that simple, to just be with the sense experience that arises, the simplicity of each moment, and to help us recognize how we get attached and entangled, and then learning something about letting go. And the more we let go and do this process, then um, that opens a, a further natural process up and that is called the seven factors of awakening and it's a wonderful kind of reciprocal thing where as the attachments decrease these the crown jewels of Buddhism in terms of the most beautiful sublime states that Buddhism teaches uh, rise become stronger and so it's what part you know part of the carrot that we're, you know, we're dangling is uh, you know if, if you could you know you can if you just if you just let go of some of those attachments, there's some pretty good states that come along. <laughs> just 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 you wait. <laughs> so next week uh, I'll talk about the seven factors of awakening, and these seven seven beautiful states of mind that are associated with awakening and the path to awakening, and uh, that really help this process along of learning to let go of the entanglements. So uh, I'll end with this uh, encouragement that um, as you go through this week, you might want to consider, look for opportunities to see, you know, find a safe time, a situation where you're content enough, where experiment with seeing how simple you can be with uh, the perception of what's happening in the moment no past, no future, just this, and see if you can kind of begin teasing apart the entanglements. So just the simplicity of the experience in and of itself, no story, no interpretation, just the natural world appearing and disappearing. 
and, uh, and, and you know, study that and see what that teaches you about yourself, that reference point. So, thank you very much. <laughs>